to thank God for uh, his faithfulness so far. It's also a chance for us to, um, an annual reminder really, of the mission that we are on, because we face a task that is unfinished before us. And so I want to speak into that uh, for us today for a few moments. Now, if the Gate Church was a boat, a vessel that goes on the water, I wonder what kind of boat you would picture it as. Just picture it in your, in your mind's eye now. Now, to help people grasp what, what the Gate Church is, is like and uh, to set right expectations. And in the early days and, and at welcome lunches and things, I'm, we might not have spoken about it quite so much in recent years, we used to describe the church uh, as this to people, as a lifeboat. You see, what kind of boat you think you're boarding makes a massive difference to your attitude to it and your expectations and your experience of it. Now, I think that many people uh, approach church a bit like a cruise ship. This is the biggest cruise ship in the world that's going to be launched next year with all the the bells and whistles you'd expect. And, And on a cruise ship, everything is tailored to the passenger's comfort and to the passenger's preferences. And there's certain expectations when you go onto a cruise ship that you're hoping are going to be met, like it's not going to crash into another ship. Uh, unlike last week, it happened, didn't it, for some people. And, and many people have that kind of attitude to church, whereas if you find yourself on a lifeboat, you have a whole different set of expectations and a whole different set of attitudes to what it looks. Your outlook's very different. You're just happy to be there and not in the freezing waters. You're probably very willing to pick up a, an oar and row towards safety, to, or to try and save others. You, you'd probably happily lean over the side and get your arm wet to, to haul someone else out of the water and out of the danger in, into the boat. You, you would share a blanket with someone who needed it. You'd squeeze up along a bench to give someone else some more room as they, as they come into the lifeboat. If we're a boat, then we're not a cruise ship, but we're a lifeboat. We're a place of rescue from eternity in hell. We're a place where people find and experience new life from a place of death in Christ. We're a place of refuge from the harshness of life in the world. We're a place of safety and security and help for people in the storms of life. For us, but also for others. And that should shape our expectations and that should shape our attitude and that should shape our experience of church. Now, I think that's a compelling vision of what it means to be a local church. But here's the thing. Being in a lifeboat is not plain sailing, is it? It takes its toll over time. And so I want us today to consider how we can sustain a healthy attitude and a healthy outlook on mission as a church, over the long run, you see there's a danger for us that I think we feel at this time as a church, as with any other church over the years, and then as we start to press into decades, is that we get knocked off course and we end up heading in a very different direction. There's a danger that we lose sight of who we are, what we're about, and our purpose and our values shift subtly and slowly and perhaps imperceptibly, but meaningfully over time, not one big event, but hundreds and thousands of small things and and small course corrections. And we become a bit more like a cruise ship than the lifeboat that we've been designed to be. 
You know, the research into life cycles of churches shows what often happens. After a period of growth in the earlier days of a church, the growth kind of plateaus. And less people are coming to faith, and there's less conversions, and less baptisms, and, and less new leaders being raised up, and less new ministries being started, reaching people in the community, and, and less mission happens, and, and less diversity grows, and, and there's more of an inward focus over time. And so over time, what can happen in churches is they kind of just slip into kind of a maintenance mode or, or, or kind of a, a comfort setting and stuff just ticks over over time. And it, it looks okay on the surface, but what happens is, is things are changing just to be as comfortable as possible for as many people to get them happy for as long as possible. And, and when that happens, and once that's settled, the next thing is inevitable decline. Inevitable decline over the years, and it could take a long time. But that's the place that it goes. And sadly, we've seen that story happen in so many churches in our country and our city over recent decades. The thing is, is that no one ever quite realizes it's happening at the time. And there's a danger, you see, that mission passes out of the system and we just follow that life cycle of, of, of churches. And, and, and so we need to remember there remains a great need around us today. There's a great need for us to continue to be a spiritual lifeboat in this community. So many lost people needing to hear about and come to know life in Jesus. So many people who are lost and helpless without a shepherd. There's a great need that continues here. And there's also a great need for hundreds of healthy churches to be started across our city in local communities where there's no lifeboats locally going and offering the salvation that comes in Christ. Lifeboats need to go where people need to be saved. There's a great need around us. So as a leadership team, we've been exploring lately what, what it might look like for us to respond to these needs and these opportunities uh, as, as a church. And in moments like this, I think it's really helpful to turn to the book of Acts in the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do today. The book of Acts tells the, the uh, story of the earliest Christians and, and churches. And, and it's helpful for us to see that others have been there and done that before us. You know, like nowadays, it's quite common for a coach of a top sports team to go and visit another uh, team or another coach or another setup, even in a completely different sport, to learn what they can from them about kind of elite level sport and, and that kind of thing. And, and the book of Acts is like that for churches. It offers us a chance to, to visit a church in another context and learn from them how we can more faithfully live for and represent Jesus in our time and place. Now listen, Acts is, is descriptive and not prescriptive. It describes what happened. It doesn't say what must happen always, everywhere, all the time, all at once, look like this. So we need to take care in how we learn the lessons from it. But I think at the very least we can say these things are included in Scripture to inspire us, to capture our imagination, to help us envision what church can be, what it can look like, what our spiritual lives can look like together, and to warn us of spiritual dangers around us. So I hope as we go there today, this will be like a bit of a shot in the arm for us on, on our, to sustain us on our ongoing mission. And we're going to uh, in particular, um, we're, as uh, Michael said earlier in, in the prayer time, we're going to be in about eight chapters today, so, so bear with me. But we're going to be learning from one church in this place in Antioch in the first century in, in what is modern-day Turkey. 
Now, now the city of Antioch is not too dissimilar to, to Birmingham today. It was this regional capital of this Syrian province of, of the Roman Empire. It's at a strategic location at the center of all of these different trade routes. And so it was hyper-diverse, this bustling city. People from all over the world living there. And, and it was very much on the rise. And all the people with all of their different language and culture and food and, and all of these things going on and all of their cultural dress. And it was a very... Um, busy and, and kind of active city with commerce at the heart, this big market in the, in the center of all of the big brands of the day on, on sale with sports stadiums and theaters and they even hosted the ancient Olympic Games there. So it feels very much in lots of ways like the city we're in feels today. And, and the church in Antioch was similar. It was diverse and it was bustling and it was, it was alive and it was a hive of activity. The church there started when Christians in Jerusalem, the first Christians, fled Jerusalem under persecution when they were starting getting beaten up and even killed for their faith. And, and they went to places like Antioch and started to tell people the good news about Jesus. And, and what happened in Antioch is the church grew and it didn't slip into this comfortable plateau and, and then this inevitable decline, but it kept growing. And over time, it actually surpassed the church in Jerusalem as a center of, of influence in the early church. You see, something amazing happened in and through the church at Antioch. Now, we don't have to be like them as we read this. But I want to say to you, we can be like them. We don't have to, but we can be. We'll see this beautiful, this, this healthy, this thriving, flourishing church. And I just want to say, wouldn't it be cool if we could be like this? Why wouldn't we want to? Now, as I said, it, it spans eight chapters. And uh, so we're going to move quickly on a, on a whistle-stop tour. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 11, which uh, if you're in these Red Bibles, is on page 1,105. But all of the verses I'm going to read are going to come on the screen. So feel free to follow along there. And uh, I've got seven points here. So it's going to be quick and fast and furious. Seven uh, top tips for sustaining healthy mission. Seven top tips for sustaining healthy mission. Here's number one. Um, they had a co the commitment, being committed to growth in faith through teaching. Acts 11 and verse 19. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. See, the church started when the grace of God goes to work in people's hearts as they hear the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and we read that a great number of people uh, believe and turn to the Lord. The significant thing in Antioch is that these people are coming from a mixture of different backgrounds. You've got Jews and Greeks, and that was a big, big deal in that day. But what is not happening is they're not just getting a load of quick and easy converts. They get a decision for Jesus and then move on. No, they're getting people who are sustained and serious 
in their spiritual growth. So the grace of God continues to be powerfully at work among them as first Barnabas and then Paul comes and they're glad and they're encouraged at what they see going on and what the grace of God is doing and they take time to meet with them. And we read that they teach great numbers and they encourage them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. You see, church is not just about numbers. Although clearly it is about numbers because the numbers are, are encouraging here and are recorded, but But it's so much more than that. It's also about depth and about growth. It's about remaining true to the Lord with all of our hearts. Over time, it's about continuing in faith and growing in faith through teaching. This is the the long-term life change that's happening in people's lives in Antioch, we read. And so in verse 26, at the end of that reading there, they're called disciples. That's followers of Jesus through all of life, for all of life. Disciples are followers of Jesus through all of life, for all of life. Not just people who made a decision for Jesus once and are barely following through on it today, if at all. And so that's why they're first called Christians there. They're little Christ, little Christ followers, because their lives are changed by him all of their lives. Listen, there's no such thing as a Christian that is not a disciple. No such thing. Following Jesus through all of life, for all of life, is what we buy into when we respond to the good news of Jesus. He is Lord of all. He's my Savior and he's Lord of all. Fed up with people talking about discipleship as some other category of Christian life or living. It's all of us, all the time. And so it has to stay a central commitment for a healthy church to remain vibrant and healthy in the long run, that we are on an ongoing and continued basis growing in faith through the teaching of God's word and the application of the good news into our lives, following Jesus through all of life, for all of life. That's number one. Number two, their second commitment that we can learn from is they're committed to relief mission. We follow on in, in verse 27 there. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This church has just been planted, and very soon in their early days, there's this severe famine that hits the entire known world at the time. This is their equivalent of a cost-of-living crisis, but even more severe. And listen, that's a trial for each of the Christians individually and personally. As we know, uh, these kind of things affect us all, don't they? And and they affect in, in very personal ways. It's also a challenge for the church together. But do you see how they respond at Antioch? The disciples as each one was able, decided to provide help for brothers and sisters in Judea, in a church down the road. So they send a gift to them via Barnabas and, and Paul to the church elders to distribute to those in most need. And so we see now that this isn't just a church that's committed to the, to the teaching and, and the growth of God's word in their lives, but it's, it's, it's a church that is committed to social justice and acts of mercy and, and relief. All of them are engaged in this. You see, each one, as they are able, responds. 
They're only too glad to serve the brothers and sisters in Judea because as they become aware of their acute physical need, given they recognize that that's where the gospel came from, them too. And so they, in one sense, owe them a great debt as the good news of Jesus came from them. And so they've got this commitment to relief mission as well. It can be hard to sustain that kind of commitment to acts of mercy and to relief and and serving others and, and bringing relief to them around us over the long run, can't it? But it's vital for a healthy and a vibrant church to be engaged in this way. And it's something that I think we're all called to be engaged in and on the front line of, according to our ability, as Christians. It's not just something for a few to take care of, but it's something for us all to be engaged in in different ways. And many hands make light work in these things. There is a great opportunity because there is a great need in our local community to be the local refuge that we say we are becoming. A great opportunity because there is a great need. Now, Micah is, um, I don't know where he is, isn't he? Micah is going to be relaunching our Mercy Ministries Hub this month. And it's kind of in need of, 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 of some fresh vision and energy and relaunch. He's going to be doing that. And so he's on the lookout for volunteers to, to, um, to, to join with him in that and to help lead us in a church and mobilize us towards these things. People with fresh vision and energy for that. So please reach out to Micah and, and, and uh, speak to him about it and let him know that you want to get involved. There's partnerships with charities such as Safe Families. And, and we've got a new partnership with CAP again. Um, probably, have I just announced that? You, you, Mike has announced it. So, but we've got a new partnership with CAP um, that, that maybe some of you are aware of. We, 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 we've got a partnership with Compassion as well. And all of those would benefit from more volunteers that we could put this kind of thing into, into action. So speak to Micah if you, want to, uh, if you want to get involved in that or find out more about it. Here's, here's the third thing. That's number two, committed to relief mission. The third one is this, a commitment to spirit-led practices of faith. Look with me at Acts chapter 13. And picking it up in verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, not only do they have an incredibly diverse leadership team in the church, they've got cultural Jews, they've got Africans, they've got Greeks, they've got Romans, all represented in their leadership here, but they've got this incredible unity in the spirit. And that's through their shared commitment to these spiritual practices and their exercise um, of their respective spiritual gifts. There's this dynamic in the spiritual life here in Antioch that is at play, that that is seen in in their commitment to not only the sustained teaching of God's word and growth as disciples, but also we read in their worshipping the Lord together, in their prayer and their fasting together, in, in them being attentive and obedient to the Spirit's leading. This is this vibrant church, kind of alive with the life of the Spirit, together being spiritually built up by each one exercising their gifts as they're given by the Holy Spirit for the good of all. These are not only formal gifts like prophecy and teaching, but also the encouragement of gathering together to worship together and that being a priority in their lives. It's their shared prayer life. It's their shared labor of fasting. It's their shared discernment of where the Spirit is leading them. You see, the way that spiritual gifts in the church work is that the Holy Spirit entrusts each of us with unique 
gifts for the good of the church, to build up others, to bless and serve others and encourage them. And so we will always be poorer and less healthy as a church if there's gifts that are entrusted to me by the Holy Spirit for the good of the church, and I'm not using them in the context of the church, but I'm holding them back. Whether it's gifts of teaching or, or gifts of leadership or, or gifts of encouragement or the gift of administration or, or the gift of hosti- hospitality. Or it could be natural skills and training in things such as design or in policy writing or, or more superna- seemingly supernatural gifts such as prophecy and healing prayer and faith. Any of these things that are entrusted to me for the good and the building up of the church, if they're not being expressed in the church, then the church is poorer for it. Gifts of the Spirit are and will be expressed in a vibrant spiritual community where we prioritize prayer together, where we prioritize gathering to worship together, where we prioritize practicing fasting as a spiritual discipline, where we devote ourselves to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, and we learn to be attentive to the voice and the leading of the Spirit of God. I think the church in Antioch is a great example to us of how we can grow as a church in this area and in the practice of these things. That's number three. And here's the fourth commitment that we see, to sustain ongoing mission. It's being committed to the mission of God by his grace. We continue in uh, verse 3 of chapter 13. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then if you just flip over to chapter 14 and verse 26, that's a couple of pages. And this is, they go off on this mission trip, and this is them coming back at the end. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of the God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You see, so they were attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and they set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work that the Lord had called them to. And they committed them to the grace of God. See, they're not just willing to send money when the need is there, but they're also willing to send people on the mission of God that he's leading into them. In fact, what's happened is they've grown into a leadership team of five by this point. And so they're able to send their two most experienced leaders out Uh, on on this mission to spread the gospel and plant churches elsewhere. And so Paul and Barnabas are commissioned through fasting and through prayer, and they head out on this mission journey. This is Paul's first mission journey, and he goes on a tour around Cyprus and uh, kind of around Turkey, um, making the most of all of the opportunities that Antioch has given them, the transport networks, the cultural connectedness, the experience of a diverse church. And they go and take those things and apply them elsewhere for the purposes of the gospel spread and mission. As they go on that mission trip, and and in that trip, lots of churches are started and planted and lots of things happen. The question is this, was it Paul and Barnabas and the people with them working, or was it God working? Of course, the answer is yes, both, isn't it? That's the beautiful reality. In mission, we join God on a mission that he's already on. God's always been on mission to draw people into his everlasting eternal life. It's why God created the world in the first place. It's why Jesus came on his rescue mission. It's why the Spirit has been sent out into all of the worlds. 
And so when we go on mission in some way, then we're only going with and following God where he's already gone. It is God's work, but he delights to do it through us. So when they come back in chapter 14 and report on the trip, do you see what they say? They tell of the work that they had completed, they've done it, and all that God had done through them, God's done it, and that God had opened the door. Now, as a leadership team, we've been exploring what it might look like for us to be committed to mission and continue to be committed to mission of God by his grace over the coming years. And so we're actively praying and and, and discussing and looking at what it looks like for us to be involved in the multiplication and and planting of churches in areas of need around us and how we can partner with others to that end and to that cause and for that good as we have opportunity. We don't know where the Lord might lead in this. We don't know. But we're aware of the great need around us. And we're Uh, We want to be ready and willing to join him on his mission, where and if he calls us. This church shows us what it looks like to have a commitment to mission, uh, the mission of God by his grace. Fifthly, as they do that, they're committed to God's word and they're committed to faithful theology. Here we are in Acts 15. Let's pick it up in, in verse 1 and 2. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they do that. They go and see them. They spend some time in Jerusalem, have uh, discussions, and then we pick it up in verse 30. Um, when they come back from that trip. So the men were sent off from Jerusalem and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. See, the biggest theological debate to arise in the early church surfaces at Antioch, and it threatens to rip the church to absolute shreds, not only in Antioch, but across the whole world of the day. And we looked at this in detail in Galatians last year, those of you who were around then. These visitors from Jerusalem didn't like the look of all of this um, diverse church in Antioch and all of the cultural freedom they see. And so they taught that to be proper Christians and to be truly accepted, these non-Jews had to take on these uh, various Jewish customs and traditions like circumcision. Now, Paul and Barnabas hear this, and, and as... as um, as, as leaders of the church in Antioch and as representatives of the church, they smell this anti-gospel, anti-freedom, uh, Christian freedom teaching and living from a mile away. And with great passion and great clarity for the gospel and for the truth of God's word and for true theology and preserving it and for the good of the Christians, they stand up to it. And they oppose it and, and, and they dispute it with zeal. They have this gospel passion and this conviction, and it brings them into a sharp dispute and a debate with these other Christians. 
And yet somehow it doesn't descend into all-out war and infighting. You see, they double down on their convictions and their commitments to God's word and what it says. And yet they don't do so as angry kind of fundamentalists retreating into an echo chamber, but with a peaceable spirit and with grace and drawn towards others to seek peace and clarity and resolution and gospel unity. And so the church sends them off to Jerusalem to to work it out. And they go and they talk it through and they do work it out. And then they come back with this letter that's to be circulated to all the churches, confirming the resolution of this theological disagreement. And as they do that, we read that the church in Antioch again is strengthened, again is encouraged as they're taught, as they preach the word of the Lord. That's a consistent activity in the church over the years. You know, we might think that to be effective on mission today, what we've got to do is we've just got to, we've got to tone it down a little bit. We've got to tone down our message. Just tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit more culturally acceptable. Then the church would really grow. Then loads of people would come because the message would, would, would suit so much better. Great things would happen. There is a great pressure on the church today to loosen up on our commitment to God's words. A great pressure. It comes from within and without. From within, from Christians who don't want God's word deeply applied into their lives. And it comes from without, from a culture and a world that rejects and detests the truth of God's word. But the Antioch church shows us we must remain faithful to God's words. Even when it costs us. We must remain faithful to the gospel. We must not compromise on that to try and be more effective or better received, or as a missional strategy or for whatever else. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What else have we got? We must stand firm, but we must do so in grace, with peaceable spirits, out of love, moving towards people. That's vital in our time, isn't it? That's vital for us. That's number Here we are. Two more to go. Number six, committed to peaceable resolution of interpersonal conflict. Chapter 15 and verse 36, just the next verse. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So having successfully navigated this great theological fallout, it seems like no time has passed, and now they face another conflict. But this time, it's not some theology or something. It's a difference of opinion on their ministry approach and their partnership. How they can work effectively together for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom. It's not a gospel issue as such, but has still great um, potential to distract and to detract from the unity and the mission. And so it's an issue that needs to be dealt with and needs to be addressed. But again, they're committed to doing so with a peaceable spirit. And in unity, so, so they talk it through. And Paul and Barnabas work it out. And, and they, in the end, they can't work it out. So they agree to go their separate ways. 
but they do it without falling out. And so they can continue and keep on about the mission that Jesus has called them on. This shows us that it's okay. In fact, it's, it's inevitable that we will have different convictions and views with others about how we go about mission and, and have different judgment calls and, and different ways you might work that out. And, and either we work through those and come to agreement uh, or in peace we go different ways. And that's okay. So we can all keep seeking the mission God has called us on. It's vital to not let these things fester or, or, or become sources of disunity and fallout or distraction from the mission that we are called on to. We're going to be, uh, stay healthy and sustained in our mission. And here's, here's the seventh and the final thing. It's a commitment to an ongoing mission. So kind of following uh, this in verse 41, um, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then just down in in, uh, chapter 16, verse 4 and 5, we see what they did. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. And then jump again a few pages to uh, chapter 18, verse 22 and 23. Again, this is the end of this second mission trip. Uh, When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, now you may think, given the theological debates and the interpersonal conflicts and and, and just being at it for a few years and maybe being tired and, and having some pretty difficult times at points, that the Antioch church is going to shrink back from being on the front foot of mission. Just take it easy for a while and, you know, just, just rest a little. But that's not the case. They continue to see much work for the gospel needing to be done. And so with faith and courage, they keep stepping into it. And so they settled into this steady and this sustained and this healthy commitment to mission, seeing churches planted right across the world of the day. Paul is commissioned and sent out, not just once, not just twice, but three times on these mission journeys across Turkey and Greece. And he's going with his partners and establishing new churches, but also strengthening the existing churches. This is what mission for the kingdom of God looks like. Going to places where Christ is neither named or known and telling people about him. And also going and strengthening and seeking the health of the already existing churches. In fact, research and story after story uh, shows that a great way for a church to stay healthy, to stay spiritually vibrant and alive, and to avoid long-term decline is to stay on the leading edge of mission. To keep uh, staying involved in, in mission, particularly in the establishment and planting of new churches. To keep sending, to keep going, to keep raising up. That's the way to be healthy. And for us, as I said at the beginning, there's a great pressure. I feel it myself. That we will tire of mission. And it will become a thing of the past. A thing that we used to do back along. And we'll look back with those rose-tinted glasses on what happened years and even decades ago. Do you remember when this happened and when that happened and when all those people were reached and when that person was baptized and when that ministry was started? 
It's just really sad when you hear people talk like that and they're talking 20, 30, 40 years back. No stories from last year or last week or last month. The church in Antioch can be an inspiration to us. It can be an example to us of how to stay about healthy and sustained mission for the kingdom of God. Look, in one sense, this is your kind of your annual kind of call to arms and, and your call to mission. It's a call to go again. It's a call to be ready to give your life for a cause that is much greater than yourself. And the church in Antioch shows us this ongoing commitment to mission can be both healthy and can be sustained. But that doesn't mean it won't be costly. Because it is costly and it will be costly. I don't think anyone in the church in Antioch was in it for an easy time. And if so, they probably would have moved on pretty quickly. I mean, you read Paul's letters and you understand what it looked like for him and the churches with to partner and, and, and to be about the mission and be the church and as the people of God in that day and age. It wasn't easy. So often we think the safest thing for us to do, safest thing for us emotionally and spiritually, and the safest thing even for our mental health is, is to retreat to protect ourselves. To step back from mission. Step back from, from serving others in some way. Often, it is wise to take a rest. And we've got to be sustainable and healthy in these things. But often what we need to do is to commit to going and doing the right things that are part of the healthy Christian life in healthy and sustainable ways. Maybe we need to change how we do them. Change how we prioritize things. But these things are what it looks like to be a vibrant and spiritually healthy Christian. And so stepping back from these things will not go well with us in the long run. And listen, while we do this, don't forget this vital thing. Here's the thing that we see. And maybe if you remember one thing, this would be it. Forget the other seven. One thing. What we see in the church at Antioch is this mission is a mission of the grace of God. It's the grace of God from start to finish. And in the end, in the end, it's God working through them. They're commissioned by his grace. They do their acts and their mission by his grace. And at the end, it's all a story of his grace. It's part of the reason we, we make a big thing of our birthday, not because we're trying to like, not because we're great, because God's great. And the fact that we're here is the ongoing evidence of it. It's all by his grace. It is God's mission. He's already about it, and we only ever join him where he's already going and what he's already ordained for us to do by his power and his grace. So listen, it means this. We don't have to be bulletproof. We don't have to all be strong. We don't have to have it all together to go forward on mission. We can go forward falteringly. We can limp along one step at a time. We can be unsure where he is leading, but we can seek his guidance and his empowering by the Spirit. And his mission to us was achieved, wasn't it, by Jesus. The Son of God who left the comfort, who left the joy, who left the delight and the security and the perfection of heaven to come to live life as a man of sorrows on earth, to go to death on a cross before rising from the dead. And that was his mission. So he could bring me and he could bring you into the life that he has for us. 
And it's because of him. And it is through our ongoing life in him and, and our experience of his life. And it is following him. And it is by his grace and his power that we go forward together on the mission that God has called us to. And all of it, every last bit of it is for his glory and his fame. So let's pray that it would be so. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mission to us. And we thank you that by your spirit, you now send us on your mission today. Please help each of us to know where you're calling us to go, to be faithful to you, to share these commitments as we see from our brothers and sisters in Antioch, to be inspired and helped by them. And so would you sustain us in healthy mission into a new year, we pray. For your glory alone. Amen.